Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this week's episode, we'll be discussing the international elites Theresa May has been rallying against and how business has reacted to the Brexit news from the Conservative Party conference. I'm delighted to be joined by George Parker, the FT's political editor, our chief foreign affairs commentator, Gideon Rackman, Sarah Gordon, our business editor, and Daniel Dombey, who's in charge of the FT's Brexit coverage. Thank you all for joining. Let's begin by casting back to the Conservative Party conference in Birmingham this week. It was an interesting affair, certainly the most vibrant gathering that I've attended. With 46,000 new members, a new leader and plenty of fresh new faces, it had the feel of a revivalist meeting. But in her keynote address on Wednesday, Theresa May signalled that she would be taking the party in a new direction and quite a radical one. Swinging like a deranged pendulum from left to right, the Conservatives are going to be tough on immigration, but welcome state in intervention. Whatever it is, it is certainly no longer David Cameron's Conservative Party. So George Parker, can you begin by telling us what you made of the Prime Minister's first speech as Prime Minister to her party? Well, I think, first of all, it was a very good performance. I thought she looked confident. In fact, she looked confident and indeed like she was enjoying the job throughout the week. And I think some journalists wondered whether she'd actually rise to the challenge of having to schmooze away around journalists and negotiate, I don't know, the drag of doing a party conference. But she did and she looked great and she sounded great and it was a very polished performance. But as you say, she was basically making a pitch for the ground that's been deserted currently at least by the Labour Party and the UK Independence Party and the speech itself could have been written by a committee made up of Ed Miliband and Nigel Farage circa 2015. I mean all the keynote policies of the UK manifesto were in there, the tough line on immigration, tough line on big business, the restoration of grammar schools and the big notes of the speech were drawn straight from Ed Miliband's predators and producers speech sort of cracked down on corporate irresponsibility. So it was a bold speech in that respect and a plain pitch for an area of British politics which has been abandoned at the moment. The key thing that struck me was she said from the off, this is my vision for Britain. And we spent 11 years trying to figure out what David's Cameron vision for Britain was and never really quite got there. Whereas Theresa May does seem to be interested in the big ideas. And there is certainly a big idea here, which is trying to take different parts of the electorate and create uh, Mayans from them. Yeah, I think that's right. She's smashing up the traditional left-right model of politics. And in fact, that's been smashed for some time, hasn't it? The fact that you've got the Labour Party and the UK Independence Party vying for votes in northern and Midlands towns shows you that model is broken. And I think she gets that. And yeah, she is shaping quite an interesting agenda, which adopts the active state crack down on the excesses of capitalism. The only thing I'd say about this, having covered quite a few keynote speeches by party leaders over the years, is you sometimes have to disentangle the rhetoric from reality. And I think what we will judge her on won't be the speech she made there, but whether she can actually match the scale of the problems she's identified 
with a scale of responses she actually draws up in the weeks and months to come. Well, Gideon Rackman, there was one group who didn't fall under Theresa May's grand new vision, and that was the blighted liberal metropolitan elite, the citizens of the world, as she called them, who don't actually understand what citizenship is. And then she was almost talking directly to readers and listeners of the Financial Times there in her vision. You know, where has this come from? You know, we've heard a lot of rallying against experts, the liberal elite and what have you, but it's quite striking to hear a prime minister come out with that kind of rhetoric. Yeah, well, it's the first time I felt direct threatened by a British Prime Minister, I must say, because the kind of people she's attacking, people who are relatively well-educated, well-paid, live in London, travel a lot, apparently they are the new enemy. It also strikes me as utter hypocrisy because she is a member of the elite that she is attacking, but clearly she regards it as a politically astute move. It's straight Daily Mail. I mean, it was hailed by the Daily Mail on the front page. That was the bit that they loved. And I guess it's attempting to find an enemy. Maybe she's correct that this is an appropriate or useful political thing to do. But I do think it's an odd thing for a Conservative Prime Minister to do because the Tories, for better or worse, have tended to be the party of the establishment, the party of big business. She seems to be saying, at least in theory, she's not interested in being that anymore. What's interesting, as you said, coming from the Prime Minister, it obviously looks a bit weird saying, I'm running against the elite when you're the one running the country. But on the other hand, her hinterland is very different to David Cameron's. That is it? Come on, you know, she went to Oxford. She spent her life in politics. OK, Cameron went to Eton and she didn't. But she's basically the same sort of person. Yeah, I mean, I think she wants to draw the distinction with David Cameron, but I tend to agree with Gideon. I think it's a very useful device, isn't it? You identify an enemy, which doesn't have all that many votes, that's for sure, has got nowhere else to go. There's no party operating to the right of Theresa May at the moment. So it's a fairly easy target. But I think it's an interesting tactic, as Gideon's saying, that the Conservative government has just had a referendum which has led to Britain leaving the European Union. That is a decision which is very much against the interests of business, most business anyway. And... What's the first thing that Conservative Prime Minister does after this vote, which has damaged the interests of business? She goes on the attack on business. It's a really interesting thing to do. The one thing I would observe about it is I wonder whether what she's doing here is she's providing herself with a lot of political cover. Because I think the real story over the next 12 months is she's going to have to start making quite a few compromises, which will upset people in her party who want to crack down, for example, on immigration, who might be worried about some of the compromises she's, she will have to make in the Brexit negotiations, which will work, I suspect, in the interests of business and against some of the interests of the Tory party. So I think setting herself out in that way at this stage was probably quite useful politics. That might be the case. The, the thing that slightly worries me about this is I do think that her strategy on Brexit, her strategy on the party conference, at the moment seems very driven by party management. She's aware that she cannot afford to pick a fight with the hardline Brexiteers just yet, that uh, there would be a huge backlash which would even threaten her tenureship in Downing Street. So she's keeping them all on side. The problem, it seems to me, as a kind of citizen of the country, is that this is a massive crisis Britain is facing. It has to be handled enormously carefully. And maybe it sounds naive, but I'd like a prime minister who thought, first of all, about the national interest and, secondly, about party management. And it seems to me she's at the moment driven by party management. But this is the key point, isn't it, Gideon? Because 
If David Cameron had remained Prime Minister, say, after the Brexit vote, I think one of his key things would have been to try and heal that divide and speak to both sides, what's called the 52 and the 48, which is the percentage of voters who backed leave and the percentage who backed remain. And this very much was a speech for the 52. There wasn't really much there to appeal to the 48. And it does just concern me. There is this toxic feel that's engulfing British politics at the moment. And by not trying to bring those sides together, you know, George is right, she might come to this later. It's not going to really help take the country forward at this difficult time. I certainly feel that, at the risk of sounding melodramatic. I can't really remember a period for you know, maybe 30 years since British politics has felt this divided by class and by animosity between groups who really don't like each other and don't rate each other. And maybe perhaps I'm feeling particularly down about it because I'm on the losing side this time. I guess if you're a minor in the 1980s, you probably felt the country was incredibly divided and it wasn't working well for you. But maybe the boot's on the other foot now and the liberal metropolitan elite, etc., are now being told that things are not going to go their way. Obviously, they're not as vulnerable a group as the UK miners who really did suffer economically. I mean, I think it's, it's interesting whether in the end, actually, wealth and power will out and may well end up disappointing the 52% because Brexit won't work out as they've been told that it will. And other aspects of their lives that she correctly identifies people are feeling unhappy about will be very, very hard to fix. But if we put aside these cultural arguments, George, electorally, it sort of seems to make sense in a way because... David Cameron's strategy was to try and take away Liberal, Democrat and Labour votes by edging around the centre ground and being socially liberal. Theresa May's strategy seems to be to try and take UKIP votes by taking policy on grammar schools and immigration and then also disenfranchise Labour voters. So and if you take, say, the 35% or so the Tories had and then add on top of it 10% of that, that's a pretty sizable way to get yourself to a majority government there. So numbers-wise, there does seem to be logic behind it. I think that's right. In terms of party politics, it's probably quite right. And she's identified, as you say, there's 52% of voters who voted to leave the European Union who, although they won the referendum, actually feel like losers. They feel like they're losing out in society and she's pitching a message at them and it's a big pool of potential voters. How many people voted UKIP at the last election? 3.8 million. Three point, nearly, nearly 4 million people voted UKIP. Some of those would have been natural Labour supporters, but never probably a good half of them could come back to the Conservative column if they're wooed and there's certainly signs that UKIP are in disarray partly as a result of Theresa May moving onto their territory. So that's good policy. And as to the 48% of people who voted to remain in the EU who feel uncomfortable about some of this rhetoric, as Gideon does, and I think many people do, I think her calculation at the moment is where else have they got to go? Some of them might go to the Liberal Democrats. doesn't seem to be happening in very large scale at the moment. But, you know, she's making a crude political calculation and attacking the party in that direction. And it's certainly, as I see it, a reversal of not just the Cameron wisdom that you pointed to that moved to the centre ground, but also the Blairite wisdom that Cameron inherited, which is elections are won in the centre ground. And maybe May has decided that, well, that no longer applies with the Labour Party rushing off to the left. I'm sure, Nelly, every political speech you've covered, George, has been described as an audacious attempt to capture the centre ground. And this one was described as that as well. But I don't think it really is the centre ground because obviously Tony Blair's calculation was, well, I can ignore the Labour left because they've got nowhere else to go to. And I can focus on the right and the centre of my party. And that's Theresa May's thought as well. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you'd be a foolish politician not to want to occupy the centre ground because that's ultimately where the votes are in British politics. But different politicians, as you say, have different approaches. Margaret Thatcher basically, through sheer willpower, dragged the centre ground to the right very successfully. What Theresa May appears to have done is to have moved herself to the right and redefined the centre ground as somewhere where 
probably before June the 23rd referendum, we didn't think it was there. But as I said, will she actually deliver on the policy? Will the policies match up to the It's rhetoric? good talk at the moment. It's great talk because if you are really concerned about the working class voters, she says the Tory party will represent, if you want to do really radical things to help them, you will be putting yourself at odds with the people who are in the hall listening to her speech. For example, will you be prepared to have a more redistributive tax system? Will you be prepared to introduce a mansion tax to deal with the problem of asset-rich people and people with incomes being worse off? Will you be prepared to tell Tory councils to release greenfield land for housing for ordinary people? You could go on. There are a whole load of issues which will really put the Conservative Party's natural supporters in conflict with the new people that she says she wants to help. And finally, Gideon, the last thing that's interesting about this, how is Britain viewed by the rest of the world? A lot of the... Some of the Brexit supporters, I should say, campaign on we want to leave Europe and go into the world and be outward looking. And that's all about free trade, reducing barriers, low taxation. And that seems to hit directly in the face of what Theresa May was talking about. Is this a sign of Little Britain at all, do you think? I think so. I mean, and I think that some tensions are going to begin to emerge within the 52%. You're already seeing it. There was a group, perhaps they were actually secretly members of the metropolitan elite, who weren't interested really in the immigration issue, were actually genuinely liberal on immigration, who were kind of appalled by the way in which May has chosen to interpret the referendum as above all about immigration. And some of them are beginning to emerge in the woodwork. There's another group who really wanted to stay in the internal market. Indeed, if you read the article, I think it was by Nick Timothy, her advisor, where he talked about why he was going to be an outer. He said in that article, anybody who's in favour of out will want to stay in the internal market. Now, apparently, they're going to leave. So that then antagonises big business. So I think that the coalition of the 52% is much flakier than we may realise at the moment. The other main element of this year's Conservative Party conference was Brexit for a change. There was a whole afternoon devoted to speeches from the main cabinet ministers working away on it. The most striking news was that Article 50 is going to be activated before the end of March 2017. That's the formal mechanism to begin Britain's exit. The other thing the Prime Minister announced was a great repeal bill to grandfather all EU laws into British law so they can then be repealed at will. The most striking and potentially worrying suggestion for business, though, was Theresa May's hint that she wants to end the jurisdiction of the ECJ and also absolutely have curbs on migration. This means the end of Britain's membership of the single market, which is certainly interesting news for the city and beyond. So, Sarah Gordon, as we've discussed on this podcast before, businesses want clarity. They've got a bit more clarity this week. What has the reaction been? Well, I don't think they have more clarity. I mean, we have a date. We had a sense that Article 50 would be triggered in early We know we're going to leave the EU now, though. It looks like we are definitely leaving. Well, I think we were sure of that as well, weren't we? But it's not so much the timing, it's the details of what Brexit is actually going to look like that business really needs to know. If you are a Deutsche Bank, if you are a JP Morgan, if you are a Nissan, you need to know details of how you will trade with the rest of Europe from the UK. And we're no closer to that today than we were last time we spoke. And we've had some interesting signals. You mentioned Nissan there, for example, and they've made it quite clear they want as close relationship as possible with the EU. The same with Jaguar Land Rover as well, who are very concerned about Britain leaving the EU, not having a free trade deal, falling back on the standard WTO rules, which would mean a 10% tariff on cars, which would not be good news for the British car industry. No, but I think for business, it's really extremely straightforward. They want access to the single market. 
full stop. So the question is, what version of access to the single market we will end up with? And of course, what was one of the overriding impressions from political events this week is that we are moving further on the spectrum away from a soft Brexit to a hard Brexit. A hard Brexit with very strict curbs on immigration implies less access to the single market. So that is the key issue for business. They're also incredibly concerned about access to skilled workers. Any policy decision on the number of future migrants that we will allow into the country is incredibly important, not just for the big banks in the city, but also for a fruit farm in Kent. So just before we come on to the migration issue, which has certainly been a big thing this week, Dan, could you just sort of express what the reaction elsewhere has been to the political events at the Conservative conference this week? I think you have to distinguish kind of a timeline which we now have. And it's almost as if we've activated Article 50 already because we now have more or less a date certain by when we'll be out of EU, which is 1st of April 2019. What kind of April Fool's Day it is, we'll find out. But let's be honest, I think the 27 and the EU as a whole is enormously grateful to have that certainty. Many people thought that triggering Article 50 was one of Theresa May's real Trump cards that she could keep Europe guessing about when she was going to do it. Was she going to do stuff within the EU or to change the single market or without? Now we know Britain is going to do this by this date and there will almost be certain out of this date. That is what the Europeans have been pressing for for a long time. They feel that actually a certain sense their negotiating power has passed to them. They've welcomed that clarity from Britain in terms of a timeline. In terms of a content, however... As Sarah says, it looks very much at the moment like we're going towards a hard Brexit side of things. And judging from the single most powerful person in Europe, Angela Merkel, there is resistance to giving Britain a special deal. She's restated in the last few days that Germany and the EU is against breaking up the four freedoms, that if you don't get free movement of people, which Theresa May is now more clearly than ever against, you're not going to get that full access to the single market. And what that means, I think, is that they're not in the mind to give Britain a favourable deal. And I would add also something that perhaps is even more important in the short term, the hope of a transitional deal, which is enormously important for British manufacturing industry and financial services, to plug the gap which could be years and years between leaving the EU and a final trade deal being struck. That hope may now be receding because if we're not part of the European Court of Justice and if the authority of EU laws is much less and if we're introducing curbs on migration from the very beginning, that interim deal to give security certainty is going to be much, much harder to achieve. So it's a very different picture for different industry services. There's some that obviously want to have that key tariff-free access to the single market. There's others where it's less so important. Where's the difference there? The most important distinction to draw is that most British businesses are not exporters and many of them also are not importers. Tariffs only affect you if you're trading with the rest of the world, as we know. So for the bulk of British business, it doesn't matter. They're dependent on domestic demand. They're not going to be affected by whatever deal we end up striking. However, that said, some of our biggest employers, and you've already mentioned car manufacturers, some of our biggest manufacturers have made decisions to invest in the UK based on using the UK as an export base into Europe. Now, their big question, and this is what Carlos Ghosn was talking about, their big question is, can we make investment decisions now, not knowing whether we will still be able to have that kind of access to Europe after a deal is struck? And indeed, it's about comparative advantage. I spoke to Paul Kahn of Airbus before the referendum, and he was saying it's not really about nobody's going to invest in the UK or Airbus itself is going to stop operations in the UK. It's more about your price advantage vis-a-vis, say, Spain, which has 
a big aircraft manufacturing industry and a big car manufacturing industry, your comparative advantage, if tariffs are reintroduced, is significantly lessened. And this is the key question because we're coming up to the beginning of next year, which is when those decisions will be made, if I'm right. And even though Dan says we know roughly when we're going to be out of the EU, we still have no idea what that's going to look like. So it is difficult for those businesses to decide right now what they're going to do that's going to affect the next five years where we don't know where Britain's going to be then. Yes, well, somebody said to me this morning that, I mean, in a sense, you've had this sort of phony war situation and businesses can deal with a lag, an investment sort of holiday for a while, but essentially what this person was saying this morning is once you get to Christmas, you've had a year really of delaying your investment decisions in the UK. You know, you make an investment decision for a year, for five years, even for decades in the case of, for example, Airbus. You cannot delay those decisions any longer. And the economic picture, Dan, still remains mixed, I think it's fair to say, that the initial shock that was predicted by the Treasury and George Osborne has not transpired. The economy has done well after the Brexit vote, better than people were expecting. But those long-term investment decisions are being held off and the pound's not doing very well either. It's been falling quite rapidly since June. So can we sort of have any sense about how business is coping with the prospect of Brexit, if not Brexit itself? Well, it is, as you say, a mixed picture. Let's bear in mind, if we look at the actual facts, the UK economy looks like it's going to be the best performing major developed economy this year, better than the US, better than the Eurozone. If you look at the PMI index, which shows level of confidence in manufacturing, that had a big bump up in August, and it's still well over the 50% mark, which shows that it's more positive than negative. So those predictions of short-term doom, those predictions of a recession this year, have not come to pass. However, Those were all predictions about how people would react to the vote rather than how economic facts of life would change. And as we go into that uncertainty, then I think we're going to see a different picture. And that is a bigger challenge. We already have, for example, predictions that next year the UK economy will do much worse than both the Eurozone and the US. And I think we're just getting a little sense of a possible future, again, returning to Carlos Ghosn. Now, we shouldn't emphasise the auto industry too much. But it does hire 800,000 people directly and indirectly. And he's basically asking for special favours from the government to keep on investing in the UK. If we're going to have that kind of relationship between business and government, it might be a bit of a bumpy ride. One thing that must be pointed out is that not everyone predicted that the economy would tank in the wake of the Brexit vote and future predictions of economic performance are notoriously unreliable. I mean, the IMF itself does not have a particularly good track record. I think that the issue of what investment decisions are not being taken is slightly a dog that doesn't bark story. We don't know what companies are deciding. The UK still has a fantastic, vibrant domestic economy. It's in fact growing, as you say, much faster than the Eurozone. There is the possibility, for example, of car manufacturing manufacturers refocusing some of their production in the UK onto the domestic market. So I think the lessons from the last six months are that we should beware in a sense of the big predictions and try and start as the sectors themselves are doing it, start being a bit more granular. And finally, Dan, what do you expect to happen next? The next few months are going to be absolutely crucial. First of all, we're going to have a decision about whether we're in the customs union or not. That's going to be tremendously important for these exporters and manufacturers in terms of whether goods are going to be subject to tariffs and rules of origin. Then, as Sarah says, we're going to have the government craft a negotiating position based on assessment of those sectors. It's going to go to the beginning of those negotiations at the beginning of next year. The real problem is that there's a limited time. There's two years to strike a deal. 
And our real risk is that what's going to happen next in the medium term is not very much. We have French elections. We have German elections. It usually takes weeks, if not months, to put a German government together after elections. So the real risk is that the real year that's going to decide Britain's fate is not going to be 2017, going to be 2018, and that a lot of us are going to be on the edge of our seats for a long time to come. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to all my guests for joining. We'll be back for another instalment of FT Politics next week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed listening to this, you might like to try our Hard Currency podcast presented by me, Roger Blitz, the FT's currencies correspondent. Each week, I discuss the main talking points in the markets with experts in the field. You can find our latest show at ft.com slash podcasts every Thursday. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.